0: After the sermon, we will sing from Hymn 55, stanzas one, two, and three, who trusts in God, a strong abode. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, when death stares you in the face, then your focus changes radically. What was important before is no longer important. When a good friend or a close relative tells you that he is going to die soon, that he only has a few days to live, then the way you interact with one another changes. Then you no longer speak to him or her about trivial things, about the little things that in the scheme of things do not really matter so much, then your discussion turns to the basics. Or When you come upon an accident on the road you are traveling, and you are the first one on the scene, then your focus also changes. Even though just a moment before you were worried about making it somewhere on time, then that no longer has any significance. In a moment like that, you don't worry either about getting your clothes dirty or your shoes full of mud. Now you focus everything on the task at hand. Everything around you becomes unimportant. You drop everything in order to be of assistance. And that's also what Job's friends did. They hear of the terrible calamity that has come upon their friend and they drop everything so that they can be at Their friends side. They don't know exactly what they can do, but they want to be there in order to help in any way that they can. Job and his suffering at imminent death now becomes their focus. That's especially the way it is for Job. If there is anyone whose focus has changed, it is his. For Job is the one who has been confronted with death, Death is staring him in the face. God has taken everything that he had, everything that was near and dear to him, away from him, and now including his health. He is full of itchy sores. He can hardly sleep or drink or swallow or sit. He is sitting on an ash heap by the garbage dump, and he is convinced that he is going to die. It's no wonder that that now is all he thinks about. Everything else going on around him no longer has the significance that it had before. Everything else is put on the back burner. The Lord God has him deal with this crisis. His focus is now on his own situation. Job needs answers. He needs to understand, and he needs to be understood. How did this all come about? Why am I in this predicament? What does it mean? What is the purpose of it? What's the purpose of suffering? And that's what Job has to understand. And that's also what Job's friends have to understand. And that's what I want to preach to you about this morning. The question we must answer this morning is, how do you understand suffering? And then we will look at two things. First of all, at the silence of Job's friends. And the second place, at the struggle of Job. The last part of chapter 2 introduces us to the three friends of Job. All these three men are well-known and respected men. As we know from their conversations, they are not only known for their wealth, but also for their wisdom. Eliphaz is is the first one who is mentioned. He is the oldest one. And we are told that he comes from the area of Teman, Commentators generally agree that Teman is located in the country of Edom. Eliphaz is somewhat kinder than his younger two friends. Nevertheless, like the other two, he blames Job for his own predicament. That's what he does later. Job, according to his way of thinking, must have committed some particular kind of sin for this to have happened to him. But he doesn't come right out by saying that. And then the second one, or at least not initially, the second one who is mentioned is Bildad. He is, we are told, a Shuhite. We don't know where Shuha is, except that it is somewhere in the Transjordan. Bildad, who is also a very wealthy and known for his wisdom, is more of a traditionalist and not as kind as his friend Eliphaz. Last one to be mentioned is Zophar. He is the youngest of the three. He is also he is a Neemathite. It is not known exactly where the region of Neema is either, except that it too is located somewhere in the Transjordan region. It is clear from this passage that these three men are well acquainted with each other. And they all know Job. No doubt Job will have done business with these men over the years and spoken with them on many occasions about their common faith in the Lord God. When they hear what happened to Job, they make arrangements together to see Job so that they can sympathize with him and comfort him. They travel all the way from their respective countries to come and see Job. But they have a difficult task ahead of them. It is hard to comfort someone in the situation of Job, especially if you yourself have never gone through such an experience. And when everything is going well for yourself, what do you say? How do you react? What can you do? Job's three friends are to be commended for the fact that they do go. And they could have ignored him, and they could have stayed in their own homes and pretend that nothing happened. That's what a lot of people do in situations like that. They have difficulty with those who have suffered great loss in their life and who are suffering. They don't know what to say. They feel at a a loss for words. They're extremely uncomfortable amongst those who are grieving. Their suffering and impending death has them confront their own Mortality. Potentially, this could happen to anyone. This could also happen to me. Some people would rather not think about that. They would rather not think about suffering and death. And so they stay away. Or if they do go, they go because of a sense of obligation, which compels them. And so they go with a great reluctance and with great nervousness. Job's friends, however, do go. But once they get there, they don't do much. All they do is sit there and weep. But they don't talk. They just sit. They sit on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights without speaking a word, they say absolutely nothing. Why? Why would they do that, you may wonder? Why don't they say something? Well, they don't say anything because they know that that is the wisest thing to do at that moment. And that is why these three friends of Job are also known as wise men. And they know better than to start talking first. Instead, they wait for Job to speak. They want to know what Job is saying before they speak. For what is the sense of speaking if you do not know what is going on in the mind of the one who is suffering? As I said, a lot of people are nervous in the presence of someone who is grieving. They don't know what to say. Or they're afraid to say the wrong thing. And so they either stay away or they say stupid things. Once they are at the bath, they start babbling. They say a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense and that sometimes even make matters worse. For example, they will tell the grieving person about the loss that they themselves have suffered and therefore wanting them to draw conclusions that things could even be worse. But that's no comfort. Or they say to the grieving person, I know exactly how you feel. Do you really? How do you know? How can you know exactly how another person feels? You don't know except if you first carefully listen. And that is the only way that you can find out. You don't have to be afraid of silence. Every moment doesn't have to be filled with the sound of someone's voice. For a lot more goes on than speaking. You can observe. You can minister to someone in silence. Actions speak louder than words. Silence is golden. Often the person who is grieving does not remember the words that you speak unless you say something really foolish. He or she does remember, however, that you were there. He or she knows that you wanted to share in the grief and in their pain. And therefore, it's always better to be quiet first and to try to understand the suffering that the person is going through. That's also how the Lord treats us. The psalmist says in Psalm 10 verse 17, you hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted, you encourage them and you listen to their cry. The Lord hears us, When we cry out in our suffering, he does not tell us to forget about what we are going through. No, he is with us when we are in pain. And the Lord God completely understands. He understands our predicament. He understands better than anyone else. And you know why? Because he listens to us. He wants to enter our pain so that we can find belief. And that is why he says in that same Psalm, verse 14, But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it and take it in hand. In Psalm 5, David cries out to the Lord and says to him, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. When Dave penned those words, he was in great pain. And he wanted God to understand his pain. He did not need to hear all kinds of pious statements about what other men had gone through in their lives and how greatly they suffered. No, he wanted God to deal with his pain. And he wanted him to understand what he was going through that very moment. And David knew that God would not disappoint him. He knows that God hears every sigh and every groan, even before we utter them. Well, brothers and sisters, that's also what the grieving want you to do. They want you to understand. They don't want their suffering to be compared to others. Each person is unique. No person is alike. And if every situation has its own particulars. For another person, it is very hard to understand the suffering that someone else is going through. You don't know what they are feeling, and you don't know what they're struggling with. So don't pretend that you understand. Listen, and then respond. And That's also what Job's friends do. They are silent. They are there to observe what is happening to Job. By just being there and by being silent, they share in his suffering. Words at this moment are inappropriate. Let Job speak so that they can respond to that. Then they will have some inkling as to what he is thinking. Only then can they come with the appropriate words of scriptures. If they had been the first to speak, then he would have come with their own agenda. As it is, they speak foolish words later on. That is because they already had something in their minds, but it would have been a lot worse if they had not listened first, because they did come with their own agenda, with their own ideas. And then finally, after seven days of silence, Job speaks. The second point. And Job begins his speech by cursing the day of his birth. And he elaborates on that day extensively. He calls it the day of darkness. He says in verse 4, That day may turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. And in verse 23, he wonders aloud why life is given to a man whose way is hidden. The RSV and the King James Version, they speak about the light not the life that is given to man. And that is the correct translation. For Job is speaking here about light and darkness. Everything is dark around him. And he is crying out for enlightenment in the midst of darkness. His darkness is so great. And it seems like bitterness. He says in verse 11, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? When something totally unexpected happens in our lives, then we too ask why. How come this is happening to me and not to somebody else? Why did I get cancer and not somebody else? Why did God give me a disabled child? Why could I not have a healthy child? Or an older person at the end of his life may wonder, why did God not take my life instead of the life of that young person who just died? I've lived my life. But that young man or young woman still is all life ahead of him, and God took his life away. Why? And the Bible asks those questions throughout also the book of Ecclesiastes. We usually do not express these things out loud ourselves. For us to do that, that seems blasphemous. How can we question God? Should we not stoically accept what God gives us? But note well that Job doesn't do that. And you will note that throughout his speeches. No, Job questions God throughout. He dares to express what is in his heart. He doesn't hold back. And that's the same kind of thing you will notice throughout the Psalms. The authors of the Psalms say things which we would not so easily say. Look at, for example, what Heman the Ezrahite says in Psalm 88. He dares to point his finger at God. He says to him in Psalm 88, You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. Haman comes across as an angry and bitter man. He is angry at God. He blames God for his predicament. He even accuses God of rejecting him. He says in verse 14 of Psalm 88. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Brothers and sisters, when everything is darkness around you, then you no longer see God. When everything is taken away from you, then you no longer have the desire to live. Life on earth has lost its meaning. It's like living in a black hole. That's how Heman felt, and that's how Job felt. All Job is doing is giving expression to his feelings. Sometimes people will say that they do not believe that God can love them. They think that their sins are too great, and they feel that God has rejected them. Do we allow them to say such things? Should we not rebuke them and tell them not to utter such nonsense? Don't you know that God is a God of love? Well, listen to what David said in Psalm 22. With gusto we sang from that psalm, my God, oh, why have you forsaken me? If it was wrong to express your feelings in this way, then it would also be wrong to have these words recorded in the Bible. And then it would also be wrong for us to sing those words. And then David would have sinned by uttering those words. And then it would be wrong to have these words of Job recorded in the Bible as well. But please understand the context within which these words were spoken. They are spoken within the context of the great trouble that life can bring. They are spoken at a time of great calamity and turmoil. They are not spoken in unbelief, however. He, man, the Ezraite, the author of Psalm 88, does not reject God. No, he begins his psalm by saying, O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. He knows that God is a God who will save him. And he goes out from that premise. But at that moment, at that moment of darkness, he can't see how. There are many questions in his mind. Yet he dares to speak to the Lord God about what lives in his heart. How can he do that? How can he do that? Because of the intimate relationship that I have with him. He utters these words because he knows God, and he knows the relationship that God has established with him. But you see, that is exactly what it makes it so difficult for him. How can God, who loves him, do these kinds of things to him? Isn't that how it is in a good marriage as well? When the one partner feels that he or she has been treated wrongly, Does he or she then not vent his feelings, her feelings? How can you do that to me? After all that we have gone through together, how much we have meant to each other over the years, the way that we have supported one another, the life that we have together, all the things that we mean to each other, how can you hurt me like that? Please let me understand. You see, that's the predicament of Job. It is especially because he knows that God loves him that he is in so much pain. That is what makes his struggle so great. The pain that Job is dealing with here has little, therefore, to do with his physical suffering. And it has little to do with the fact that he has lost all his possessions, that they were all taken away from him. For note well throughout Job 3, he does not complain about any of that. Indeed, throughout the whole book of Job, his material possessions do not even come into play. That's not what bothers him. That's not what concerns Job. What is it then that vexes Job's soul as much as it does? Well, he is wondering about his relationship with God. And that relationship that he has with God is what is so important to him. He doesn't know why this is happening to him and wonders whether or not God is angry with him. And that is Job's great struggle. And that was David's great struggle. If you read through the well-known psalms, thirty-two or fifty-one, for example, and then you will see how David anxiously seeks out God's face. He wants God to look upon him favorably, and that is why the words of blessing that are spoken at the end of a worship servant service are so important to us. There God promises us that he will turn his face towards us and give us peace. When you're angry with someone, then you don't want to look at him. Then you will even turn away from him. Those whom you love, however, you want to have near you. You want to look at him or her. You want to experience each other's presence. You want there to be that connection. And you see, that is what Job is missing at this moment. He feels disconnected from God. And so he is groping for answers. Job's friends, in spite of the fact that they first carefully listened to him, do not really understand Job's struggles. They become like armchair theologians. And they will speak to Job about God. They will speak to him about the way that God deals with those who have sinned against him, that he punishes them. And in this way, they speak about God and his ways in an abstract way, as if he is out there somewhere. Even though they started off in the right way by being silent and listening to him, they still did not really enter Job's struggle. Job, however, does not speak about God, but he speaks to God. And he has an intimate conversation with him. He seeks God's presence. And that is why God continues to love Job and to regard him favorably, in spite of the fact that Job does say a lot of things that he should not say. Job says that he feels hedged in. In other words, God has put walls around him. He doesn't know which way to turn. He doesn't know how to escape from his current predicament. It's interesting that Job uses those words. for that's exactly what Satan accused God of doing with Job in chapter 1, verse 10. And there Satan said to God, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he does and everything he has? Of course, Satan means this entirely different way than Job does. Satan means that God, by putting a hedge around him, has protected him from all kinds of adversity. But Job feels it exactly the other way around. God has allowed every evil force to descend upon him, and he has not protected him. He has put him in the pit of the devil, and he cannot escape from what God has done to him, and it is in this way that he has hedged him in. Brothers and sisters, sometimes God does that to us. The Lord God takes away the things that behold near and dear to us, and then he makes us evaluate our life. He makes us suffer. Why? So that we turn to him. He changes our focus so that we are forced to look at him, so that we are forced to look at him alone. At a time like that, he puts you before a choice. For at moments like that, you can do one or the other. You can either turn away from him and want nothing to do with him any longer, or you can turn to him for answers. And if you love him, And if you know him, and if you know his ways, then that's exactly what you will do. Whatever else may then have been important in your life, then you are focused to look at God. And then everything else around you isn't really all that important. God puts you before a choice. Be thankful when he does that. Brothers and sisters, that is what the life of the Lord Jesus Christ was about while he was on the earth. God tested him like no other. He took everything away from him. All the glory that he had with the Father, as it says in Philippians 2, he took away from his Son. For the Son of God emptied himself of the glory that he had with the Father, and he became weak, and he became vulnerable. And in the end, God forsook him totally while he hung on the cross and he bore that terrible curse against the sin of mankind. But that is where you and I are different from the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father may take everything away from us, but there is never there is one thing that he will never take away from us. And that is his presence. Oh, sure, you may be full of questions. And you may think that it's all darkness, that the sun is no longer shining. It doesn't mean that the sun isn't there. It just means that you can't see it. And the darkness is your sinful outlook on things. But even in the midst of darkness, one thing, you can be sure of that God will never leave your side. But also remember what Job says, a man's way is hidden. In other words, you do not know what's going to be happening in your own life. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know what kinds of calamities are going to come upon you. You don't know either What kinds of blessings God is going to send you on this earth? Those who think that God speaks separately to them out of the blue, they think they know these things. But it isn't true. A man's way is hidden, as Job says. All those things are hidden. The secret things belong to God. God only knows these things. And that is what can make life such a struggle at times. We want to know. And that's why some people turn to horoscopes or other ways to find out the future. We want to know what's going to happen to us. Well, we may not know the details of our lives beforehand, but we do know that God loves those who seek his face. He loves those who seek answers from him and who seek it in love, who seek it because of the relationship that they have with him. He loves those who struggle in life so that they can again experience his presence, his face, to see his face shine upon them. And so, brothers and sisters, if there is anything that you want to tell others, who are overcome with grief. Then it is that God loves those who believe in him, who turn to him for answers. He loves those who cry out to him. He loves those who seek their answers with him, even though they may not have immediate answers to their questions. In the end, God will make it all clear. As long as we focus our lives on him, We're all so busy with our daily lives, and we have so many things to enjoy. We don't want to think about gloomy things like this, do we? And you should be happy, happy with the things you have. God has given you a life here on earth, but as you live your life, you have to have the right focus. Our life belongs to God. Our possessions belong to God. Our health belongs to God. Our life belongs to God. It's all in his hands, and we have to give it over to him first. It is in that knowledge that we have to live our lives. It is in that knowledge that we have to focus our lives. Our focus must always be in God. And only he has the answer to suffering. And you know what that answer is, don't you? And where to find it? You can find it only with His Son, Jesus Christ. He died for us so that we can live. He is the light in the midst of darkness. And it is that light that we have to seek. For if you don't find that light, then you're going to be full of anger and bitterness and you will stumble around in darkness, and you will become lost, and in the end, totally lost. Brothers and sisters, seek the light and live. Amen.